0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: Rituals and ceremonies can take many different forms. Ritualized prayers can be very simple, like this family-spoken blessing before a meal but they can also be chanted, sung, and danced, as we see with these devotees praising Krishna. In some cases, people's movements are fairly free-form. In others, they're highly synchronized, as they were in this opening ceremony from the Beijing Olympics. Some rituals involve pain. Here, Shiite Muslims mark the killing of the grandson of Muhammad with tears and self-flagellations. Others may include drugs, such as peyote or ayahuasca, and still others include wine. These ceremonies and rituals fall on a spectrum when it comes to altered states of consciousness. A blessing before a meal isn't likely to induce what we think of as an altered state, while hallucinogens, such as peyote, reliably induce visions and other unusual experiences. Let me highlight the variable relationship between ritual and altered states by showing you two clips from different versions of the same ritual, a Catholic Mass. The Mass has a Vatican-approved ritual script that includes a segment called the Sign of Peace. The Sign of Peace involves a set back and forth between the priest and the people. Here's how it went in the daily Mass broadcast on Canadian television. Lord Jesus Christ, who said, to "Your apostles, peace. I leave you. My peace I give you. Look not on our sins, but on the faith of your church, and graciously grant her peace and unity in accordance with your will. Live and reign forever and ever." Amen. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Contrast that with the sign of peace in a mass in a small town in Ghana. Both are following the same approved ritual script, but I hazard to say that the dancing and drumming in this African Mass is more likely to induce an alteration in consciousness, at least in some people, than the Canadian Mass online. This brings me to our main point. If we adopt fairly mainstream definitions of both ritual and altered states of consciousness, It's clear that they intersect in some cases, but not in others. First, rituals do not necessarily produce noticeably altered states of consciousness. Second, deliberately induced altered states, the focus of this symposium, make use of a wide variety of so-called induction techniques. Third, rituals whether religious or not, reliably induce noticeably altered states only if the ritual includes induction techniques, which many rituals do not. And finally, fourth, ritualization stabilizes altered states and reinforces their value. Here's an overview of where we're going. Before we dive into some more examples I want to lay out some basics having to do with rituals, altered states of consciousness, and the ways that the two can intersect or not. When it comes to rituals, there are several things that we need to keep in mind. First, whatever else they are, rituals are performances, that is, special events that are set apart from everyday life. Second, performances are ritualized To varying degrees. Formal rites and ceremonies are highly ritualized, but sports, games, theater, and the arts can be more or less ritualized as well. And third, we need to keep in mind that what counts for us as ritual rite or ceremony is shaped by our history. Other cultures don't necessarily make the distinction we make between a religious ritual And a theatrical performance or a musical concert. With that in mind, let's take a look at how scholars define ritual. Here's a recent mainstream definition of ritual. Rather than read it, I'll just highlight the four key aspects of this definition. First, it involves action. It's a predefined sequence of actions, And that's what makes it a performance. Second, it has a script. So the action is characterized by rigidity, formality, and repetition. Now, I want to give you an example, because sometimes the performer of the ritual blows it and has to recover. And I can't resist showing you this example. So, in case you didn't understand what rigidity means, rigidity means that when you drop the cloth in a sacred ritual on the floor, you can't just pick it up and go on using it. You have to, you can't just put it back. You have to get a new cloth that hasn't been defiled and then you can proceed. Okay. Third point, meaning. The actions involved in the ritual are embedded in a larger system of symbolism and meaning. And fourth, the ritual has components. It, can pay, it contains subroutines that lack direct instrumental purpose. So, the part about the cloth might is one of those subroutines that you could say lack direct instrumental purpose, but for our purposes, a really important thing to notice is there's no mention in this definition of altered states of consciousness. So let's turn now to how altered states are defined. The current definitions basically still go back to the one suggested by Ludwig back in the 1960s, and it's quoted here on this slide. But again, let me just highlight the the key feature, which is that an altered state is a mental state recognized either by the subject or by an observer based on the behavior of the person that deviates from the general norms, however those are defined, of alert waking consciousness. For our purposes, it's also important to note that altered states that are deliberately induced make use of what we're calling induction techniques. Now, if you go to an expert source like Wikipedia you can find a long list of induction techniques, and they include such things as breathwork, dance, fasting, hypnosis, mantra recitation, music, physical exercise, prayer, psychoatric drugs, sleep deprivation. I can keep going on. The point for us is that these so-called induction techniques can be embedded in rituals but oftentimes they're not. This means that when it comes to relating rituals and altered states, we can ask a series of questions to figure out how they're related, if at all. We can start either with the rituals or with the induction techniques. If we start with the rituals, we can ask if they involve induction techniques, and if so, how the techniques relate to the ritual content. Are they integral to the ritual, or are they optional as they were in relation to the mass, or are they discouraged? Alternatively, we can start with the induction techniques and consider the extent to which they're ritualized. We can ask whether the ritual is, per, uh, is personal or collective, and we can ask whether or to what extent it's embedded in a larger system of meaning. Here, we're going to start with the induction techniques. We're going to look at several. We're going to look at visualization. We're going to look at chanting and movement. And we're going to look very briefly at pain as an induction technique. And then we're going to conclude by considering the effects of ritualization. We can begin with a series of clips on visualization. In the first clip, Anthony Gale, a hypnotist, explains how he selected kids, high school kids, for a demonstration um, to a high school audience. These folks appear to be extremely good visualizers. They have an ability to
0: internalize a picture quickly and easily, which is what a hypnotist is looking for. A hypnotist wants to see, can a person take a picture and transmit that picture into action? If you invite them to imagine holding 100 balloons, do you get the arm autonomously
1: rising? So I've identified these folks as being very good visualizers. In this next clip, Ashanti Johnson opens her TED Talk with a description of the personal visualization ritual that led to the founding of her successful exercise and weight loss program on the south side of Chicago.
0: So every morning, as I was getting ready for work, I would have my favorite cup of coffee and I would enjoy it on my balcony. It was my ritual. I would sit down and instead of looking out at the amazing view I had, I would look down at the parking lot and imagine that one day it would be my fitness gym's parking lot. And while everybody's,
1: you know, seeking stability, you know, on the level of their family and their job, I was having these intense visions of my potential in fitness. Every vision would unfold just a little bit more, and it was becoming real. Visualization is going to
0: help you to determine what you want so that you can fully realize your
1: vision. In that last video, Johnson promoted the power of visualization in order to reach her personal goal. In the next video, a young woman named Hearth Witch introduces visualization as the foundation of magical practice. Visualization is the ability to see something in the mind's eye. To be able to almost physically see something as though it was in front of you. It allows us to add an extra layer into spell work and ritual, to be able to see the desired outcome that we want to achieve as though it's already happened, to be able to see in the mind's eye the energy that we are manipulating. The sequence illustrates several things. First of all, what good visualizers see can seem real to them, even if it's not. Second visualization can guide action and sometimes produce what's visualized. And third, visualization practices can be incorporated into personal rituals, such as Johnson's, or into collective practices and passed on by teachers, such as Hearthwich. From an evolutionary perspective, we can think of visualization as a way of projecting into the future. This allows people to plan for various contingencies and undoubtedly has survival benefits in terms of human evolution. But at the same time, it can also lead people to get stuck in fantasies and conspiracy theories that are entirely out of touch with reality. Now let's look at a set of clips that involve chanting. Chanting can be done alone, in a group, sitting still, and combined with music and movement. Chanting is not limited to religious contexts. Here you see American football fans chanting with synchronous movements. In the next chant, you see football players chanting We Ready sprawled around on the locker room floor and gradually building to a collective dance-like movement as they prepare to go out onto the field. Compare that locker room chant with this clip from an Ubanda center in Brazil, which includes chanting, drumming, and dancing as devotees are possessed by African deities known as orishas. In these videos, chanting and movement unite the group and encourage the performers, the football players, and the Umbanda devotees. In both cases, the specific tra- chants bring out the best efforts of the performers, whether on a football field or in an Umbanda center. Chanting and collective movement promote what Durkheim referred to as collective effervescence, and, as he argued, tend to promote group solidarity. This, too, likely has evolutionary benefits in promoting collective action on the part of the group. Finally, let us look briefly at extreme rituals, many of which, like the Muslim ritual we showed you at the outset, look like they inflict pain whether through body piercings, firewalking, bondage, or self-flagellation. Recent studies of some of these rituals indicate that performers may not actually feel the kind of pain we would expect and instead experience altered states, such as ecstasy, euphoria, or unusual mental clarity. The ability to split off or dissociate feelings of pain or threat may have evolutionary roots. Although some researchers view dissociation as pathological, others have suggested that it may have enabled people to process information differently in the face of extreme threats and thus to have had survival value. To sum things up, we've considered three different types of induction techniques that may have evolved to serve different ends. We've looked at visualization, which enables future planning. We've looked at chanting and movement, which promotes synchrony and group coordination. And we've looked at pain-induced dissociation as a means of reducing stress under extreme conditions. So why would humans have ritualized these induction techniques? What added value might it have offered? We want to suggest three potential benefits. First, ritualization stabilizes the effects of the induction technique. The stabilizing effect is obvious in relation to psychoactive drugs, where both researchers and drug users have long been aware of the importance of set and setting in avoiding bad trips and promoting positive ones. This, we think, is likely true of other, less reliable induction techniques as well. Second, ritualization reinforces the value of the altered state by integrating it into a larger system of meaning. This, in turn, generates expectations, which helps to produce the desired results. Third, ritualization encourages the transmission of the techniques as a means of achieving the goals of the group. This isn't a one-way street, however. Altered states can also add value to rituals, as the two versions of the mass that we showed you highlighted Induction techniques tend to intensify rituals and may make them much more compelling. Thank you very much.
2: Hi, I'm Reed Montague. I'm from Virginia Tech from the Fralin Biomedical Research Institute, and I'm here to talk today about neural substrates of mindfulness. Um, But before I get started, I just want to credit um, the motive force behind this, certainly in my lab and then with me over the last decade, and that's Ulrich Kirk, who's now at the University of Southern Denmark. Ulrich has had a long-term interest in mindfulness meditation, both as a practitioner and as a mode of gaining control over our cognitive functions. So as a neuroscientist, I'm quite interested in one that does imaging in humans. I'm quite interested in how that comes about, the neural systems that are involved, and how we might uh, harness this and micromanage it in a way. Uh, So I just wanted to start by depicting what others, not me necessarily, define as mindfulness. Um, And John Kabat-Zinn, as you see in this quote here, says, it's paying attention in a particular way on purpose in the present moment and non-judgmentally. Now, there's a lot of ways into mindfulness meditation, none of which I can depict for you. I'm a computational neuroscientist that works in the area of neuroimaging and models that pertain to neuroimaging. And so I don't know how to make a comment on this kind of definition, but I do know how to think about cognitive control. So let me just say the way I see some of the aspects of mindfulness. And I think these are subtle problems. And that is something that we in the lab like to call the superpower. So there's something about humans that's obvious that sometimes goes overlooked. And that is we can interrupt our biological needs, our need to eat, to sleep, to excrete, flee, experience pain based on an idea, literally based on an idea, a person in a religion A person in a group, a person can come to think anything they want to think, use that to gain control of everything they do, literally, to the extent that they can even kill themselves. This is a kind of behavioral superpower. And I think it's probably fair to say that if it's not unique to humans, it exists in a unique form in humans. Okay, so what? Well, the so what is, what are the neural systems involved in this? And can we start to tease apart, uh, brain responses and brain systems that have been identified that might impinge on this kind of uh, superpower as I've described it here. So I'm going to focus today on two specific question types. The first is um, mindfulness practitioners. Are they better at regulating emotional states during social exchanges? And in this case, we're going to set up a staged social exchange and we're going to ask, do people trained in mindfulness meditation? Are they able to uns- withstand fairness and unfairness better than people that aren't so trained? And secondly, does mindfulness impact the way valuation systems in your brain work? And in both cases, I'm going to ask very simple uh, questions. That is, I'm going to do very simple experiments. So I don't want anybody to think that I'm making the statement that this somehow subsumes the whole of mindfulness. The measure of interest that we will use, the neural measure of interest, is functional MRI. And as you know, Uh, Functional MRI is a proxy for small blood flow changes in the brain, and blood flow changes in the brain are highly correlated with neural activity changes. Uh, This is a workhorse um, method for people interested in cognitive neuroscience. Um, So we will be putting people in scanners while they do various kinds of uh, tasks. The treatment that we'll focus on is a treatment between control subjects and otherwise matched subjects that have either been trained in mindfulness or or within a training paradigm in mindfulness meditation. Okay. Um, To that end, we've been carrying out for about the last 10 years what we call the mindfulness task battery. And I'm not going to go through this. This is just to show that we have all kinds of little tasks that um, we have focused on. I'm going to focus on two that I've highlighted here in red. The first is a primary reward task. In this primary reward task, something simple is going to happen. And a a, a rodent uh, experimental psychologist would call this a a simple passive conditioning task or a a conditioning task. Light will come on. Sometime later, a squirt of fruit juice will be squirted into your mouth. And then we're going to manipulate the expected timing of the squirt of fruit juice. Okay, so that's a very basic primary reward task. The second kind of task, I'll draw your attention down here to the ultimatum game, is best described as a take-it-or-leave-it game. We're going to give someone an amount of money. They're called a proposer. They are going to propose a split across another person, the person being studied. In this particular case, you see it's a 9-11 split and a $20 handout. So person starts with $20, offers a split to the other person, and the other person accepts it and walks away with the money or rejects it, in which case no one gets anything. So what that does is it sets up a tension between how you respond to an unfair offer and whether or not you should accept any non-zero offer. In economics, the rational choice agent would accept any non-zero offer in every offer, but that's not what people do, okay? How did we do this? So I'm gonna start with the ultimatum game. Uh, we did this uh, by first carrying out a very, very long training paradigm. Um, that took, I suppose, two years for us to carry out these experiments. This is, again, uh, driven by Ulrich Kirk. So we had a result some eight years ago um, using this kind of game, and you see it depicted here at the bottom. The black player is the proposer, and the red player is the responder. The black player, each round is endowed with some amount of money and offers, in this case, X to the other person. So, in the case that I showed before, it was $20, and uh, the offer was I'll give you nine and I'll keep 11. You then get to choose whether you accept and get the um, nine or whether you reject because you don't like that split um, and no one gets anything. Uh, the fact is, people can get very incensed at what they consider to be an unfair offer, and that's what we're going to use to probe this. We're going to range from perfectly fair and equitable split across the two players to profoundly unequitable across the two players, and we're going to look at the brain responses. Before we do that, we're going to set up a giant randomized control design where people were recruited um, with very generic terms, not mentioning meditation or mindfulness at all. They were then randomly assigned to what we call the mindfulness intervention group or the uh, active control group, and here uh, in my second bullet point, I call it the physical relaxation group. We hired um, trainers that were skilled in the art of teaching mindfulness meditation, and people came in on regular um, duty cycles every week, and um, we scanned them throughout the process uh, of being naive to meditation and then being trained in meditation. So these are naive participants randomly selected into the training group or to the active control group. The active control group got relaxation instructions for the same amount of time. The others did... Uh, during the training paradigm. This is a a published paper, but I'm just going to talk about a couple of the results in it. Okay, remember how the ultimatum game works. So let me show you, on the x-axis here, we show the offer size, um, and on the y-axis, I'm showing the percentage um, acceptance rate. So when there's an exactly even split, 10 to me and 10 to the other person, the responder, which is the person that we're probing here, accepts almost all those offers. There's just a little noise there. That is, if I offer if I'm offered 10 and I know that $20 is being split, I accept literally all the time. As the offer size to me reduces from 10 to 9 to 8, and you see in the middle there, 15 to the proposer, 5 to me, the rejection rates go higher, the acceptance rates go lower. But the the main thing is that the two groups, the group selected into the mindfulness intervention and the group selected into the uh, active control, are identical across all those offer size levels. And they both show the exact same tailing off as the offer size diminishes down to the miserable offer of 19 to the proposer and I take $1 away. Now, a rational agent should take the dollar. Okay, that's not what people do. There's this response in them that... You know, reacts to unfairness and it's, it's important to react to unfairness. After training, after eight weeks of training and establishing that the mindfulness group is different in various ways, I showed you some of the tasks that we uh, did on the mindfulness battery and I'm now just discussing the one ultimatum game. You see that there's a separation starting at about 13 to 7, 14 to 6 splits across the two players and the mindfulness group is accepting more and more inequitable offers as it comes. And frankly, with training, this gets to be more and more extreme. In other words, in a sense, they're accepting money that they didn't have before the offer and um, at a rate much higher than people not otherwise trained. So there's the behavioral result. The neuroimaging result, there are many, actually. I'm going to start by showing you what does a region of their brain that we know responds to affective negative affect, and this is the anterior insula. And I'm showing it here on the, on the left. Uh, you're looking at a coronal section through the brain, through the average brain of, I guess, in this particular case, 50, 58 subjects. Left is left and right is right. Uh, and you're seeing an activation there, and I'm not going through the detailed statistics of any of this, I'm just hitting the high points. You see a strong activation in the anterior insula on the left side, you see a smaller one on the right side. That activation scales with a degree of unfairness, both in the control group, you see here in blue, and in the mindfulness training group, the group that's going to be given the mindfulness training paradigm. Percent signal change in the insula. Okay. What we found is that this response to increasing unfairness, this response in the mindfulness group got flatter and flatter um, as the training went on. And we discovered something else as well—that it wasn't just the response of the insula that was habituating, as it was as a function of the mindfulness training. It was its connection to other regions of the brain known to be involved in valuation and in social exchange. One region shown here is the septal region, that's on the left, and you see here a uh, an act the interaction between the septal region and the left anterior insula. And I've plotted. At the right here, uh, the correlation coefficient based on a particular kind of analysis between pre-training and post-training, okay? So that's a social exchange game that's been studied by many others across many different cultures and many different circumstances. We've used it even to look at the differences between people that have traditionally defined psychopathologies and uh, matched control samples. And what we saw here was control subjects Randomly selected into the control uh, arm, and people trained in mindfulness. So, it's a, it's a um, uh, we can induce this in naive people by doing the meditation training. I want to add, address one more feature, and that is how does such training also affect what you would call low level primary reward responses? Is it true that their mindfulness practitioners are sort of living in the present as it was? And the hypothesis is the decision making mechanisms in the mindfulness people uh, are seeing a relatively flat value function. By flat value function, I mean this. One of the ways we look at reward systems in the human brain is we see them as evaluating the next things that could be done. Evaluation functions, the way that the artificial neural networks evaluate board states now to play chess and Go and things like this. They have a value function that says, how valuable is it if I might move X and change the board to one condition versus move Y and change the board to another condition? Same thing here. And our hypothesis was that what these people end up training themselves to do is to have a relatively flat value function across all options. And I'll come back to this at the end because, because of, I think, the impact the um, that this may have on uh, Parkinson's disease. But the current state, in a sense, is equivalent to any other state. So we did a very simple experiment based on an experiment we did basically 20 years ago. Okay, A yellow light is, Turned on, left on for one second and extinguished, a six-second delay, and we squirt fruit juice into your mouth while you're lying in a scanner. Okay? We do this a number of times, uh, 20, 25 times, etc. And what happens is that your brain gets very used to the light predicting six seconds into the future a certain amount and quality of juice it's going to be squirting into your mouth. Then, after that training, we can then change the timing of the juice squirt And we induce in your reward systems what are called reward prediction errors. And this is pretty easy to see here. The dashed red box indicates a time when a certain amount of juice was expected, but not delivered. That would be a negative prediction error. Things are worse than you would have expected. And then the novel delivery time of juice at 10 seconds in the catch trial. So we have two kinds of errors there. Uh, Positive prediction error, where juice is delivered but not expected. And a negative prediction error, where a certain amount of juice was expected, nothing was given. That's a negative error. This just shows the number of trials that went into it. Let me draw your attention to the top of the slide here. There's a the light going, uh, being illuminated for one second. There's a six-second delay. And now we're looking at the time when the juice is delivered at the novel time of ten seconds. Okay, And it's being compared to the normal events where it's delivered at the six-second delay. And when you do that and compare the brain response of meditators in our training paradigm here, in our eight-week, after our eight-week training paradigm, and the active controls, there's a profound difference. You can see this on the images between controls and meditators and positive prediction errors. And then when you contrast controls to meditator brain responses, you see this down at the bottom, both in the brain response and in the percentage signal change in the left putamen. So this is... Um, uh, The putamen down at the lower left here. Again, we're looking at a coronal section through your brain, and you can see that on the catch trials, when the juice is delivered at a surprising time, the control brains in this region give a gigantic response compared to the meditators, and the meditators give no different response than they did to the normal time of juice delivery. What we think is happening is you're retraining your um, reaction by various means that we could uh, speculate over in the discussion. Um... To the expectations that form. Here's the same thing for the response to negative errors. So this is the six second delay where the juice is expected, but nothing is delivered. Again, there's no response to this in the meditators. That's a negative reward prediction error. And there's a pr- big and profound response to the controls. And you see in the lower right with the blue and red bars that the meditators show no difference across normal and catch trials in the control. So a, a big difference. Now I have to say one thing that's a technical point, which is the non-response of the meditators to the negative prediction error is really a mute condition. We don't have in a functional MRI, a good estimate of the false negative rate. So we don't really know how to say anything to a brain that doesn't respond because we don't know what the level would have been and um, um, Sort of anyway, now there's some ways around that, but there're not a ways around that in this kind of design. So, uh, I think that the thing to focus on is that there's a relative difference across the controls versus the meditators. Okay, well, uh, so we've seen that um, while people bring very lush narratives and training paradigms into the idea of what mindfulness can do to you to help you concentrate, to help you calm down and be less stressed, to manage uh, various aspects of disease states. That, in fact, they do induce changes that are measurable with um, functional MRI. And I'm just going to point to the future directions. The future directions from my lab are that um, we are now able to make direct recordings in conscious human brains of neuromodulatory systems that deliver chemicals like dopamine and serotonin and norepinephrine to widespread regions of the brain. That we know are involved in setting and stabilizing certain kinds of brain states that we think are involved in this training that we're Uh, this training effect that we're seeing right here. And so that's the future direction here. It is direct recordings in human beings during uh, opportunities afforded by neurosurgery for making such recordings and looking at the direct impact on neurotransmitter release profiles uh, for uh, meditation. So thanks very much for having me.
0: Hello, I'm Tom Trodosh. It's a pleasure to be part of this Carta Symposium on Altered States of Mind. My title is Imagination and Embodiment in Practices of Sacred Sonorous Being. and I'm going to begin with a passage from the poet William Blake's Marriage of Heaven and Hell. The ancient poets animated all sensible objects with gods or geniuses, calling them by the names and adorning them with the properties of woods, rivers, mountains, lakes, cities, nations, and whatever their enlarged and numerous senses could perceive. And particularly, they studied the genius of each city and country, placing it under its mental deity till a system was formed, which some took advantage of and enslaved the vulgar by attempting to realize or abstract the mental deities from their objects. Thus began priesthood, choosing forms of worship from poetic tales And at length, they pronounced that the gods had ordered such things. Thus, men forgot that all deities reside in the human breast. This passage addresses my theme of the role of religious practices in defining what it is to be human. Blake offers an evolutionary or at least para historical argument that the priest is a debased and degenerate version of the poet operating through abstraction of mental deities from their objects rather than through the poets enlarged and numerous senses and thereby serving enslavement and oppression rather than liberation and imagination. Imagination is a fundamental human process, to borrow a phrase from Janice Jenkins. Can we then say that imagining is an altered state of consciousness? Or is it the default state of consciousness that is the norm and defines us as human? To begin answering this question, it's useful to identify the opposite of imagination. And I want to say that it is taking for granted. In Blake's terms, this taking for granted is not merely a description of everyday quotidian life. It is a forgetting that all deities reside in the human breast. Imagining is not simply a matter of mental imagery nor even a matter of multisensory imagery. I want us to recognize imagination as deeply embodied, such as the polarity of imagining and taking for granted is parallel to the polarity of movement and stasis. All movement is grounded in imagination, not only as a form of intentionality or tending toward the world, but insofar as it is that it invariably has a kind of style and style is the imaginative possibility always present in movement. To take this one step further, movement defines life because the absolute absence of movement is death. I want to introduce the idea of sound as a feature of embodiment, movement, and imagination. Sound exists in polarity with silence, whether it is the silence of solitude or the silence of censorship. But I want to leave silence to the side in order to engage sound in religious practice. Indeed, in a comparison of two religious practices engaging the human voice in song. I'm going to make a lot of the fact that as bodily beings, we both hear and produce sound and ask us to imagine that sound is one of our enlarged and numerous senses. In some, I want to offer a reflection on the religious implications of our sonorous being a phrase from the philosopher Maurice Merleau-Ponty, which is highly resonant to understanding the contribution of imagination as a bodily process of defining our humanity. Let me begin by quoting the passage that inspires this reflection from Merleau-Ponty's 1968 essay, The Intertwining the Chiasm, in which he introduces the idea of humans as sonorous beings. Like crystal, like metal and many other substances, I am a sonorous being, but I hear my own vibration from within. As Malraux said, I hear myself with my throat. In this, as he also has said, I am incomparable. My voice is bound to the mass of my own life as is the voice of no one else. But if I am close enough to the other who speaks to hear his breath and feel his effervescence and his fatigue, I almost witness in him as in myself the awesome birth of vociferation. There is a reflexivity of the movements of phonation and of hearing. They have their sonorous inscription. The vociferations have in me their motor echo. This new reversibility and the emergence of the flesh as expression are the point of insertion of speaking and thinking in the world of silence. The first sentence of this passage evokes the materiality of our bodies as substance. The unexpected comparison of our living materiality to inanimate crystal or metal invokes an alterity or otherness in our embodied being that will become consequential in my argument with respect to the sacred. However, ours is a sonority that not only rings or pings when it's struck, but is intentional in producing its own sound sentient in perceiving that sound and reflexive about both the sound and its source as uniquely bound to the mass of my own life this sonorous being is intersubjective insofar as we can relate to the voice breath effervescence and fatigue of another human a fellow sonorous being it is a function of what merleau ponty refers to as the flesh by which he means our sentient materiality His use of words like movements, emergence, and insertion suggests the existential status of speaking and thinking in the world of silence. Merleau Ponty's understanding of the sonorous being of our embodied fleshly existence can give us insight into the imaginative embodied generation of sacred power if we take it up in the context of concrete examples. Accordingly, I'll briefly introduce two ethnographic phenomena that extend the extent existential meaning of our sonorous being to the dimension of the sacred. These are the religious practices of Pentecostal charismatic singing in tongues and Native American church peyote songs. Pentecostalism is a diverse global movement within Christianity, it is characterized by the ritual performance of charisms or gifts of the spirit prominent among which is the practice of glossolalia or speaking in tongues. Although in some forms of Pentecostalism, speaking in tongues occurs as a spontaneous vocalization in a state of trance, among many charismatics speaking in tongues is a conscious and intentional act. Most often, those who speak in tongues are praying in tongues and thus communicating with God. Specifically, praying in tongues is a form of praise to God with the understanding that vernacular language is vastly inadequate to express the magnitude of praise of which the deity is worthy. The gift of tongues can be used in private prayer but has particular performative impact when a group or a large assembly is praying in tongues together. This impact is amplified when praying in tongues becomes singing in tongues. In a large assembly, the mass of vocalization provides a background drone that modulates around a particular tone and with an improvised melodic contour that among Catholic charismatics is is reminiscent of a Gregorian chant. There are no set melodies, since as a gift of the spirit, tongues are presumed to be improvised, spontaneous and inspired. There's typically no instrumental accompaniment of singing in tongues, but frequently a gestural accompaniment in the prayer posture of palms open and arms spread or raised, and occasionally a percussive element added by the clapping of hands. Allow me to give you a simulation, a brief respectful imitation of singing in tongues. Native American pyotism is a pan-Indian religion, many ritual features of which are derived from Plains Indian cultural patterns. Ritual practice is centered on prayerful consumption of the hallucinogenic cactus, Lophophora williamsi, which contains significant amounts of the psychoactive al- alkaloids, prominently including mescaline. The peyote is in effect a sacrament, medicine, spirit, and a source of insight and illumination for participants peyote songs are a prominent feature of the Native American church. Like singing in tongues, peyote songs are a form of prayer understood to be inspired by the peyote spirit and to facilitate connection to the divine. They may be sung in private, but when performed in a peyote meeting are solo performances. These prayer meetings typically take place in a plains Indian style teepee and are all night events that last from sundown to sunrise the following morning. In the course of the meeting, peyote medicine is passed round several times and participants take turns praying, singing and encouraging a patient whose troubles are often the reason for which the meeting is being held. Each song has a distinct melody and lyrics which are typically repeated four times with only minor variation and improvisation. Individuals may have created more than one song and may learn songs from others. The singer usually self accompanies with a ceremonial water drum or rattle. In contrast to the flowing wave like quality of singing in tongues, the percussion amplifies the song's effect with a pronounced ryth- rhythmic element. Again, allow me to give you a simulation, a brief, respectful imitation of a fragment of a peyote song. <speaking in Spanish> The critical feature that these forms of sacred song have in common is that they have no semantic component such that all their meaning is carried in the sounds as such. There are no words. In peyote songs and singing in tongues, there are recognizable phonemes and morphemes, syllables and even syntax but no semantic or lexical elements. Close phonetic and morphological analysis show that there are recognizable patterns among individuals and groups that pray together. And occasionally a person will report being gifted with more than one prayer language or more than one peyote song. Yet in the absence of semantic meaning, these forms are entirely about the corporeal being of sound. There is meaning but the meaning exists whole cloth with no possibility of parsing into units. It is a seamless fabric of resonant praise for singing in tongues and a unitary sonorous embrace of the medicine's power in peyote songs. In this way, the practices presuppose a distinct state of consciousness, both in the absence of a semantic content and in the presence of the sacred. Merleau-Ponty makes two points about vocalization in a way that suggests there is something about the embodiment we have in common as human beings that forms the basis for experience of the sacred across these culturally distinct forms of ritual song. First, he says, I do not hear myself as I hear others. The sonorous existence of my voice is for me, as it were, poorly exhibited. I have rather an echo of its articulated existence. It vibrates through my head rather than outside. I'm always on the same side of my body. It presents itself to me in one invariable perspective. I hear myself from both within and from without. I experience, and as often as I wish, the transition and the metamorphosis of the one experience into the other. And it is only as though the hinge between them, solid, unshakable, Remained irremediably hidden from me. The existence of this hinge evokes the theme of reversibility, so prominent in what Merleau Ponty has to teach us about embodiment. There is the reversibility of my voice uttered and my voice heard. There is also a deeper reversibility of my voice articulated and my voice as I feel it from within myself. Second, when it comes to spoken language, Merleau-Ponty says, to understand a phrase is nothing else than to fully welcome it in its sonorous being, or as we put it so well, to hear what it says. The meaning is not on the phrase like the butter on the bread, like a second layer of psychic reality spread over the sound. It is the totality of what is said, the integral of all the differentiations of the verbal chain. It is given with the words for those who have ears to hear. Merleau-Ponty's point is that meaning is always embedded in the sound of speech and is not something added to it. The absence of semantic meaning in the sacred singing we have considered does not render the vocalization inconsequential or uninteresting. Instead, it points to the magnificence of sonorous being in and for itself. Indeed, the phenomenology of speaking includes far more than semantic and lexical meaning. The feeling of vocalization in our mouth and our characteristic vocal posture, the corporal resonance of the sound, the echo and acoustic variation in our audition, the presence of others in the modes of intimacy or performance, communication through tone of voice and the modulation between silence intervening in speech or speech in silence. These features are all present simultaneously with and providing color and flavor to semantic meaning before it enters dialogue, discourse, or narrative. The phenomenological immediacy of sonorous being is evident if we allow ourselves to reimagine vocalization, speech, and song as bodily secretions, material emanations of sonorous being. The absence of semantic meaning in peyote songs and singing in tongues amplifies these phenomenological features and their reversibility. The reversibility of the voiced and the heard and the different ways they feel or resonate not only draws back the curtain on alterity or otherness, but instantiates alterity as an immediate bodily experience. The religious and ritual setting consecrates the natural act of vocalization as an imaginative act, such that if it is possible, as is the case in both the Catholic Charismatic Renewal and the Native American Church, To experience word as power, it also becomes possible to experience voice as power. What I want to suggest in conclusion is that these sacred songs derive their performative efficacy, their power, by tapping into the embodied alterity that grounds the sacred in a particular way. Being able to move autonomously is the definition of animate life. But Merleau Ponty observes that there are certain kinds of movements that go nowhere. Among these are, in his words, especially those strange movements of the throat and mouth that form the cry and the voice. Those movements end in sounds, and I hear them. The paradox of movement that goes nowhere provides a clue to another kind of reversibility that between imminence and transcendence. To be precise, In peyote songs and singing in tongues, the sacred emanates from the singer's body, but in both cases, the songs and tongues are also a gift from a higher power. In both cases, the act of singing is a reaching beyond and has a trajectory toward the divine, but it is also irrevocably lodged in the chest, throat, and tongue as movement that goes nowhere. In the end, Engendering this reversibility of the transcendent and imminent in concrete experience is the significance of peyote songs and singing in tongues and what they have most in common in addressing the imaginative force of sonorous being in defining our humanity.